Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Osteoarthritis is an incredibly common and burdensome condition. Quite frequently, people with osteoarthritis have other illnesses that travel alongside that, what we call comorbidities. A couple of those common illnesses are things like diabetes and asthma. Today, what we're going to do is talk a little bit about those diseases, but probably more importantly, the treatment of those diseases and the potential for medications that are being used in those diseases to help in the management of osteoarthritis. And in particular, what we call repurposing those drugs for osteoarthritis purposes. Why might you do that? Well, I guess in the first instance, it may have some potential benefit for the mechanisms of osteoarthritis. But in addition to that, another major motivation here is that the drug development pathway is a really long, slow, and expensive one. And oftentimes there are failures along the way that lead to greater expense. And if you can repurpose a drug from one disease that has benefits in another, that can shorten the pathway and definitely shorten the expense. So it's a little bit complicated, but I think it's an important topic and one where we're really looking at this whole issue of repurposing drugs, where we take a drug from one disease and potentially apply that in a context of osteoarthritis. And for this particular topic, we're highlighting a couple of papers from Dr. Matthew Baker, who's going to tell us a little bit more about this really important topic. Hello, Matt. Welcome to the show. Hi, David. Thanks so much for having me. I oh, know it's a, it's a real pleasure and really looking forward to having a chat about what you've recently published. But before we get into the main content of today, can you just tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself, your background, and what a typical day looks like for you? Yeah. So I live in California now. Uh, but I actually grew up in a log house in the woods in Oregon around a town of 3,000 people. And my dad was the town dentist and my parents' best friends were the town doctors. And and they really modeled kind of what it is to care for people longitudinally. And, and that was something that really appealed to me. And one of the things that ultimately drew me to rheumatology 
And now I'm at Stanford. I'm the clinical chief of our division of immunology and rheumatology. And I actually spend much of my time focusing on two rare diseases that aren't osteoarthritis, and, and those are sarcoidosis and IgG4-related disease. And I find that it's really fun to to work on rare diseases that don't get a lot of attention and, and for which, you know, there's still a lot unknown. But more recently, I've expanded my focus to include osteoarthritis. And, and that's been incredibly rewarding, given the high prevalence and, and unmet need and how kind of anything we do in, in that space to move the needle, you know, has potentially such a significant impact given how many people are affected. And in addition, my colleague, who you, I think you probably know, our division chief, Bill Robinson, he studies OA in the lab. And so, you know, we sort of collaborate to extend his laboratory findings into the clinical research space with these kinds of epidemiological studies. So, you know, my day-to-day work, it's sort of like probably most of us in academia, there's a lot of variability. Unfortunately, probably too much time spent online and, and meetings, you know, with research collaborators and advising groups and administrative purposes. But I, I'm in clinic two sessions a week and, and I see trial patients most mornings. You know, I spend a lot of my time running clinical trials and then get to precept the fellows in clinic and, and on the wards. Um, so it's, it's really nice to have kind of that diversity in each day is a little bit different. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think the diversity is what keeps me coming to work every day. Um, a little bit of variety is very much the spice of life. Now, <laughs> Matt, do you mind if I ask, just obviously IgG4 and sarcoid is very different to osteoarthritis. What drew you towards osteoarthritis? Was it was it Bill or, or was it something else? Yeah, it, well, it was two things. One, you know, even in those diseases, I'm frequently encountered with the question of joint pain. And is it basically osteoarthritis or is it some component of inflammatory arthritis related to it, particularly in sarcoidosis. And although inflammatory arthritis and sarcoidosis is rare, you know, many, many patients I see have joint pain. And so, you know, OA is always kind of on on the forefront of trying to figure out how to help those patients. And then and then definitely working with Bill, he's had some really striking observations. And so it provided a really nice opportunity uh, to collaborate. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think the environment that you have there where you've got someone who's very strong in the basic sciences, but also someone who hopefully wants to see if that could be translated into the clinical community, that collaboration can be incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. So kudos to both of you. Now, <laughs> when when you're not at work, what do you like doing? Yeah, my wife, Amy, and I have a 16-month-old boy named Jack. So, you know, spending time with him is, is definitely the best part of my day. And we, in general, we love to travel. And, you know, we did a lot internationally sort of in the years before COVID, we went right before we went to Peru and hiked around Machu Picchu and and spent several weeks in Spain and Portugal. More lately, it's especially with a little one, it's been shorter trips, but you know, this area is is great for that. So we go down to Big Sur or up to Mendocino, or actually this weekend, we're going to Santa Barbara. But as as Jack's getting older, we're definitely gearing up for to go abroad again and, and really looking forward to it. Yeah, well, you live in a wonderful part of the world. And you know, having had four kids ourselves, I remember, you know, a lot of the great journeys we had were when they were really small and, you know, they, they gained so much from it. So, so enjoy it. Matt, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? I think people would say I'm disciplined and practical, but also laid back and intuitive and family oriented. All, all wonderful qualities. And I, I wonder if the, uh, 
does the laid back come from where you uh, grew up or is your parents? Or- Definitely. I think, you know, the town I grew up in, in Oregon, it was, it was like, you know, one store, two stoplights and an annual rodeo. And we did, nobody took things too seriously, like including, you know, academics. So actually in my, my graduating class of a hundred in the local public school, where there was actually a, a really nice scholarship that had been set up by a wealthy timber family in the past that paid for everyone in my high school to go to college for free if they wanted. Only 20 people out of the 100 went to college. So, you know, it was like growing up there, it was, there was a lot of focus on sports and and sort of life balance. And I think that's, you know, carried over well for me. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful way to grow up. Not that this is a competition, but I grew up in a town of 200 people. <laughs> wow. Similarly, similarly, very rural. Uh, it was a, a, basically a daring village. Uh, we had uh, no stoplights to claim to our town, but uh, <laughs> it, there really wasn't enough traffic and uh, definitely no rodeos, but I would have loved that. That would, that would uh-huh. be fantastic. Um, wow. All right. Now I'm getting distracted, but the main content of today is really looking at you know, the potential to repurpose drugs for the practical purposes in, in osteoarthritis. And this is on the back of a recent paper that you've had focused very much on a drug that's used in oftentimes diabetes management called metformin. Can you, I guess in the first instance, can you just tell us a little bit about what metformin does, both in diabetes, but also why it might have an effect in osteoarthritis? Yeah. Yeah. So metformin, as you said, it's it's sort of one of the first line therapies for patients with, particularly with type 2 diabetes, and it's been widely used now for over 50 years. And it, you know, its primary intent there is is its glucose lowering effect. So it helps to to treat diabetes. And but what's interesting is that numerous studies have also shown that it modulates or changes factors related to inflammation and, and metabolic factors like reducing plasma lipids, leading to weight reduction. And in fact, you know, in some circles it's kind of touted as a, as a wonder drug and given these sort of anti-inflammatory, anti-aging, anti-cancer, you know, pro-weight loss and immunomodulatory effects. And I had to laugh recently. I, I saw a tweet that said, slowly but surely, everyone in San Francisco is on metformin. No one talks about it, but at least one person at every table is rustling through their bag, making perfect eye contact and pops a pill without saying a word like nothing happened. <laughs> so, you know, I think there's there's this really interesting kind of intrigue with with what metformin could do I, I don't think we have great data to support that type of use but you know we're very interested in in, in hopefully elucidating that so you know for the purposes of, of osteoarthritis there there are really nice data that show metformin activates a particular pathway the technical term is, is amp kinase and the downstream effects of that are, are thought to mediate osteoarthritis to some degree and and that's been shown in animal models where you can induce osteoarthritis. For instance, in mice, you can do a surgical procedure where you destabilize the medial meniscus. And, and so it's sort of floppy and that trauma over the next few months causes what really looks similar to, to human OA in the mouse knee. And there's similar models in, in other um, animals like uh, macaque monkeys. And, and so people have, have done those studies where they treat them with metformin and, and it attenuates or, or kind of improves osteoarthritis. And, and then when they look specifically to do more technical studies, they show that it, you know, it partly works by activating that AMP kinase. And in fact, if you genetically alter that, it removes that protective effect. So, you know, there have been numerous studies in, in animals 
that look really interesting for for why metformin might work. And then, you know, we're not the first people to have this idea. There's also prior observational studies in, in humans that generally support the use. And I know you've contributed to work in that space as well in some of those papers, which is great. And, you know, I think for us, you know, the, the thought behind this study was to approach it a little bit differently. You know, a number of those prior studies really look at progression of pre-existing osteoarthritis and how that might be affected by metformin. And we were sort of looking at it more of, you know, can you actually prevent the development of, of osteoarthritis at all? And, and some of the other studies that have been done, you know, had a hard time accounting for other anti-diabetes medication use, which could potentially confound the effects of metformin and, and other kind of issues related to study design. And so we, we wanted to you know, re-ask this question in a large data set. Yeah, and I think you did a, you did a great job. As you say, there were, you know, including the studies that we contributed to, there's a, a lot of limitations in the existing literature that can be built upon, particularly with regards uh, looking at the development of disease. So actually looking at people who don't have the disease and looking at the impact that the drug might have on its development. So Matt, let's get in and talk a little bit about the study itself. What was the population that you studied? Tell us a little bit about the design. Yeah, so th this was a retrospective cohort study. So in other words, looking backwards at data that already exists, and, and we used a, a large insurance claims database called Optum, which covers about 15 million individuals annually across the entire United States, uh, most of which are privately insured and some are have Medicare Advantage Part D. And we included patients or individuals who were at least 40 years or older, you know, given the general prevalence of OA in, in slightly older population. And we required that patients had at least one year of enrollment in, the, in this claims database before their first diagnosis code for diabetes and their first prescription for, for metformin or the comparator drug, uh, sulfonylurea. And, and the reason we do that is just so that we ensure that when we select patients to study that we know in that year prior that they didn't already have a diagnosis of osteoarthritis, because of course the, the purpose is to really look for that as a new outcome down the road. And so we, we included individuals with type two diabetes based on ICD codes. For people who aren't familiar, you know, claims data is, is really, uh, it's not a look into the chart of patients. So you don't get fine details. You basically get information that the doctor puts into code for insurance reimbursement purposes. So there's certain codes that, that allow us to identify patients with, with diabetes. And, you know, we excluded patients with type one diabetes and obviously patients that already had existing osteoarthritis. And what, what were the main outcomes of interest here that you were focused on? So the primary outcome was a new diagnosis of osteoarthritis that occurred 90 days or more after starting the treatment. And we sort of chose 90 days as the minimum period of time that we thought was relevant in which a treatment effect would be likely. And so, you know, we defined osteoarthritis, again, based on ICD codes. And as a secondary outcome, we looked at joint replacement, which is also coded using procedural codes. And, and so we looked for anybody who had a hip or knee uh, joint replacement as well. And so for coding purposes for the development of osteoarthritis, this would be people with a new presentation, presumably of symptoms that's consistent with them then having that having that recorded in their medical record by their treating doctor. Is that correct? Right. And, and we required uh, two or more codes separated by 
at least two weeks. So if someone just sort of had one code thrown in and never again, you know, then that didn't seem as reliable as, as a real new diagnosis of osteoarthritis. And, and we didn't include those in the outcome. Yeah. And what did what did you find? I would mention one other thing. I think um, there's an interesting, actually, a whole literature around these types of studies that, that look at metformin. Because, you know, I think a key factor to any retrospective study like this is, is the comparator group. And, you know, ideally, you want that comparator group or your controls to look as similar as possible to the cases, which in this case are, are patients treated with metformin. And that's really not an easy thing to do, particularly in this disease. You know, metformin is sort of the standard of care for generally for almost all patients to start on with diabetes. Um, and so the question is then, you know, is there another treatment that is fair to compare to? And so a lot of studies have actually compared with just untreated or non-treated patients, and that can definitely work, but it poses a number of issues. If a patient never gets a treatment, um, it may be that they didn't even really have diabetes. I mean, there, there are certainly patients with diabetes who, who try lifestyle changes, diet changes, weight loss, et cetera, and, and don't actually take medication. But I think the definition of, of diabetes is called into question a bit if, the, if they're really never treated. And so that poses some problems. And then if you just compare it to several other treatments, it's hard to know what the effect of all those other treatments might be on osteoarthritis. So we really wanted to, to consolidate it down to just one treatment as the comparator. And we chose sulfonylureas because they, they are sometimes used as first-line therapy and very frequently, at least in, in the past before some of these newer therapies, as a therapy right after metformin. And we took into account the fact that there is this difference in timing. So some patients, you know, patients often get this in a stepwise approach, metformin, and then a sulfonylurea. And so we use uh, an interesting method called a prevalent new user cohort study, which again has, has been discussed a lot, especially in, in, in this metformin space where a lot of studies have been done in cancer that showed really important or really profound uh, protective effects, but then randomized trials didn't necessarily recapitulate that. And and part of it was due to, to some of the bias that's introduced in these comparisons. You know, it's a really important point to qualify. I, I guess just to challenge that, though, is there any reason to think that sulfonylureas may increase a risk of osteoarthritis or joint pain and have mechanistically an effect uh, that may be opposite to what you're purporting that metformin may have? I think that's a great point, and I don't think we, we know. I, I'm not aware of any you know, mechanistic or preclinical data that would suggest that, but I don't think anybody knows. No one's done sort of the randomized prospective trial to know. And so it's, it would be mostly speculation. Yeah. And so then obviously you had a large population of people. Tell us about them and what, what did you find? Yeah. So after we did this matching, so basically we, we took patients who were treated with metformin or treated with a sulfonylurea and we, we matched them on a number of variables. So they looked as similar as possible and we ended up with about 20,000 individuals in each group. And then, you know, we looked at basically, we followed those patients for as long as they were in our data set or had the outcome and or stopped the treatment or started a new treatment. So we were really isolating just the effects of when they're being treated with metformin or a sulfonylurea. And, and we found that patients treated with metformin, their incidence rate of developing osteoarthritis was about 27 events per thousand person years. And that was compared to almost 40 events per thousand person years for patients treated with a sulfonylurea. And then we did, you know, more conventional statistics where we adjusted for all the important variables, 
and then looked at the sort of risk of developing osteoarthritis and found that those patients treated with metformin had about a 24% reduction in the risk of developing osteoarthritis compared with the patients treated with a sulfonylurea. And then for joint replacement, which was the other outcome that you had a look at, what did you find there? And can you compare and contrast that to the other literature that's out there on metformin and risk of joint replacement? Yeah. So we did not see a statistically significant difference in joint replacement. The event number was was very low. So the incidence rate for joint replacement in patients treated with metformin was 1.5 events per thousand person years, and that was compared to 2.1 for patients treated with a sulfonylurea. So after adjusting, our hazard ratio was 0.8, but I don't think anyone would argue that that change in incidence rate is sort of meaningful. But when you look at actually the number of events or or how many patients had, had joint replacement, it was 31 in the metformin group and 45 in the sulfonylurea group. So those numbers are just, are just very small. And you know, I think what we would hope is that if, if you had a really massive cohort of patients and followed them long enough that this outcome was much more common, given that hazard ratio of 0.8, you know, if that's really the trend that with a bigger population, you would see that become significant. But of course, we don't know that. But we, we generally like that outcome a lot in these types of studies because it's a really hard endpoint. You know, if someone gets the procedure code for a joint replacement, it's fairly certain that they, they really got it. And that suggests that they had, you know, pretty severe disease, whereas our primary outcome of looking for a new diagnosis of osteoarthritis, of course, coding can be incorrect and it doesn't tell you about the severity of the disease or anything like that. And so, you know, we were, we were hoping to see the same effect in the joint replacement. And, and that has been shown in other published studies, again, looking at you know, patients with existing OA that go on to joint replacement and metformin has been shown to have a protective effect even against joint replacement and, and some of those other studies. Yeah. So like any good research, it sort of raises important questions about, you know, how did how did this mechanism and how did the protective effect, at least in the development of osteoarthritis, come about? And what's the likely mechanisms by which metformin may be having an effect if so? And if so, you know, what populations of people should be targeted? So you said it obviously at the outset that this is a study that's focused on people with diabetes. Ultimately, do you think, and I'm going to get you to extrapolate and hypothesize, and it may be well beyond what your particular paper has shown, but it's good to think about it. Is this likely to be an effect that's restricted to people who just have diabetes, or, or is it likely to be able to be extrapolated to others? And if so, or irrespective of that, what's the likely mechanism by which metformin's having an effect on the prevention here? Is it through through weight loss, through effects on inflammation, through effects on lipids? So that, that way, theoretically, we can think about uh, intervention trials that may be able to test those effects. So let's at least start with thinking about the, the mechanisms and go from there. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's a great, it's a great point. I mean, I think, you know, patients with diabetes kind of fundamentally have different metabolic derangements or or changes than other people in the general population. And it's well described that the prevalence of osteoarthritis in patients with type 2 diabetes is higher as much as maybe twice as prevalent than the general population. And part of that is people think that like, you know, hyperglycemia itself or having high glucose levels from diabetes is it can cause cellular and tissue injury in the joint. But it's also possible that other things that increase the prevalence of OA are you know, age and obesity and things that increase with age. So type two diabetes, that the prevalence increases with age. 
and it's a bit highly associated with obesity. So that increased prevalence of OA in, in diabetes, there could be some mechanistic link there, or it could just be an association with, with other issues like obesity and increased age, which we know contribute to, to OA. But I, I think that, you know, it's certainly hard to know from our data if this can be extrapolated to other populations. But I think if the preclinical models are translatable, you know, those in non-human primates and, and mice, those were not done in, in animals with metabolic issues or diabetes. And, you know, they sort of showed this kind of interesting pathway activating AMP kinase, which should be independent of diabetes or, or metabolic issues. So if, if that's really believed to be kind of the main mechanism, then I think so. I, I, I think a young person with post-traumatic, you know, neoa, you know, obviously looks very different than an older patient with with type two diabetes and obesity and and OA, and so it very well not work in in that population. And I was going to do a study with metformin. I would I, mean, I would definitely target it to maybe an older population with more kind of what's thought to be this kind of indolent chronic low grade inflammation driving it as opposed to injury. So that's kind of how I would think about it right now. Yeah, I mean, it's good food for thought, but obviously needs to be tested properly in prospective randomized controlled trials, because I think, well, I, I'll let you admit it. I may be well, very wrong, but I think the challenge is obviously with any large claims database is the potential for residual confounding, irrespective of how good your yeah. propensity matching was. Um, yeah. So there are always biases that that lie there that need to be tested in trials. But am I putting words in your mouth? No, I should say, you know, I think our biggest limitation is is our lack of BMI data or data on weights and and how, you know, weight changed. And, you know, that unfortunately that type of data is just not available in claims data. So in addition to residual confounding of things we can't even think of that might be different between these two groups, the one that we can identify that we we know we didn't adjust for is is weight or BMI. And, you know, certainly, you know, there are lots of studies that show metformin results in more weight loss than sulfonylureas. And so it's, you know, it's possible that over the course of the time we observe these individuals, the one, the people on metformin lost significantly more weight and, and that helped to reduce the risk of OA. And I, my one counter argument is, you know, and it's, it's a bit flimsy, but there was a randomized controlled trial of diet and exercise. So that has nothing to do with metformin or, or diabetes, but just patients were were randomized to different interventions. And, and they actually, in that study, had a similar degree of weight loss as what is typically seen with, with patients on metformin. The purpose of the study was to look at the development of OA, and, and there was really no difference between the people who lost this kind of similar degree of weight and those who didn't in developing OA. So I you know, I would argue that even if metformin caused that weight loss, we have at least one study that shows just that weight loss alone may not mitigate the risk of developing OA. So so this is a prevention study in osteoarthritis? Is that is that proof that you're referring to, the, the study in the Netherlands? Yeah, I think that's the name. I think that's right. Okay. So Matt, just moving on a, a segment. So the I don't know whether the same is happening in, in the United States, but there is a massive amount of social media and community interest in weight loss drugs, particularly drugs like semaglutide, we give you a Zempic, whatever you want to call these drugs that particularly target GLP-1, but there's a range of other drugs that are also being used in diabetes and, and weight management. Do you think there's a potential role for those medications in the management of osteoarthritis as well? Yes, I, it's a very interesting question. I think, you know, like you were referring to these this class of drugs, the GLP-1 receptor agonists, you know, which again are used for diabetes. They 
they stimulate insulin release from the pancreas and, and then they also lead to weight loss. There are a couple of preclinical studies that I think mainly which deliver the treatment intraarticularly, so an injection into the joint of, of animals, usually mice, showed a reduction in OA, a reduction in a number of inflammatory pathways. I think, you know, as you know, and anyone who talks about this a lot, it's like you can kind of, there are many studies in mice that look really good and you can kind of take any intervention and reduce, not any, but many in, in OA and reduce reduce the histopathology. So um, I don't make too much of that, but I think, you know, it, there's an interest and people are studying it and and it, and there may be a signal there. And obviously the the weight loss and other things may play a role. I have seen two studies in, in patients and in humans where osteoarthritis was part of the outcome. One study was looking at getting patients to do a dietary intervention. And then those that, that lost weight were randomly assigned to liraglutide or placebo. And then they looked at the difference in body weight from that point on, and also the CU score, which is an outcome measure of osteoarthritis, particularly the pain score. As expected, the patients who then got liraglutide lost more weight, I think a difference of about four kilograms compared to placebo. Um, but there was no difference in the CUS pain score seen between those two groups. So we don't have strong kind of perspective data, but there's another study that similarly showed an, an increase in the CUS of about 3.8 points on a on the zero to 100 scale. So hard to know how significant that is. But I think, you know, I think there's a lot of interest in, in doing that. And I, you know, I haven't seen any larger epidemiological studies like what, you know, like what we did or what you've done with metformin to evaluate that, partly because they're new. So obviously you don't have a lot of time to look for the outcome, but I think those we're interested in doing that. I'm sure others are too. And I think the the other big class that are being used, the SGLT2 inhibitors, you know, those in, inhibit reabsorption of glucose in the kidneys. So again, lowering your blood sugar. So very useful for diabetes also have shown to to have cardioprotective effects, so benefits for heart disease. Um, and in, I haven't seen any data in that, whether preclinical or observational human studies in osteoarthritis. So I'm not sure, but I, I do think that they cause a similar degree of weight loss. And so if, if one doesn't believe that they have any protective effects, that could be a really nice comparator group for the GLP-1 receptor agonist in, in a kind of you know retrospective study. Yeah, no, as as we said before, with regards to metformin, it's an area that's ripe for research. And there's a couple of prospective randomized trials just about to start looking at different GLP-1 agents that hopefully will give us some answers in the not too distant future. And and obviously for everybody who's out there who has osteoarthritis at the moment, who's thinking about experimenting, we don't have any good data at the moment to support the decisions that you make. <sighs> so Moving on, and again, this is primarily just because I have the benefit of talking to you today and I just wanted to pick your brain, but you also recently did a study looking at uh, atopic disease, so asthma and dermatitis and its particular role in and or relationship to osteoarthritis development. I guess in the first instance, why did you look at that question? What, what was the interest mechanistically? Yeah, and this kind of goes back to what I was mentioning about about collaborating with Bill Robinson, and and they've done really nice work in the lab that shows that if you look at synovium or the tissue lining the joint in patients with osteoarthritis um, compared to control tissue, patients with osteoarthritis have an increase in mast cells, which are typically thought of as you know playing a role in in, in allergy and allergic pathways, but in in patients with osteoarthritis, they have 
an increased number. And, and actually, if you look closely with electron microscopy, those cells are, are all, or many of them are degranulating. So releasing histamine and tryptase and these other factors, whereas the smaller, the fewer numbers of cells and controls, they're there, but they're not degranulating. And in particular, there's an increase in when you expose cartilage to tryptase, it actually leads to degradation and you can reverse that with a tryptase inhibitor. And then in, in Bill's lab, they did a, a nice mouse study, again, inducing osteoarthritis and, and doing so on a genetic background where mast cells have been knocked out or depleted. Um, and those mice are kind of spared or have less severe osteoarthritis. And so we had this idea that if, well, if mast cells are really a critical player in the development of osteoarthritis, perhaps patients with atopic disease who, who presumably have more activation of some of these allergic pathways may be at a higher risk for developing osteoarthritis. And, and so we wanted to kind of extend that observation into to this type of study. And what, and again, I guess it's a similar design to what we just spoke about with regards to metformin, but tell us a little bit about the design and what did you find? Yeah, I think the the so we, we it is very similar. We use the same optum claims data, and we did propensity score matching. The one big difference was that we also did a, a second analysis, sort of a sensitivity analysis, using the Stanford electronic health record data, um, which includes a few million patients, and that data set does have BMI and weight, and that so that allowed us to include that variable which I think is really important for, you know, adjusting for in studies like this. And so we compared patients who had either asthma or atopic dermatitis or both compared to just non-atopic patients. And then we did a secondary comparison of patients with asthma with COPD. Um, the thought being that COPD is, is also a lung disease or pulmonary disease similar to asthma, but one that doesn't involve allergic pathways. And so we, yeah, we did the same sort of setup where we created cohorts that were that looked very similar, matched on all the variables that we could. Um, and then we looked for the development of osteoarthritis. And what was the risk in those people that had ATP, so asthma, dermatitis, versus those that were not exposed? Yeah, so patients with either asthma or atopic dermatitis compared with non-exposed, it was, the incidence rate was about 27 in those with atopic disease compared to 19 per thousand person years in those with without. And then in the adjusted analysis, it was there was about a 58% increased risk of developing OA. And, and the interesting thing is there was sort of a dose effect. So those patients who had both asthma and atopic dermatitis, so perhaps a more severe atopic disease phenotype had a 115% increased risk of developing OA um, compared to controls. And then, you know, in that asthma versus COPD, it was, it was a similar result, about 83% increased risk of developing OA. And, and then lastly, in that sensitivity analysis with the Stanford data where we had body mass index, the risk of atopic versus non-exposed was, it was about a 42% increased risk of developing OA. So less than what we saw without adjusting for BMI, suggesting that perhaps adjusting for BMI, you know, it does it does play a role and there may be a difference in those two groups, but still a, a pretty significant increased risk. Yeah, so substantially increased risk in those people that have asthma and um, endotopic dermatitis. So what implications does that have either for future research, for clinical practice, for patients who have one of one or either of these diseases? Yeah, so in this, unfortunately, in this study, we could not look at treatments that one might take for allergic disease, the most common one being antihistamines. 
um, because those are obtained over the over the counter and, and not included in, in these types of claims data. But actually, we've looked at that question in another data set, looking kind of a post hoc analysis of a few clinical trials that were done in Denmark. And we presented that at ULAR last year. And in that study, they're, they're, they were tracking NEOA progression with radiographs, and they did have information on antihistamine use. And we did find that antihistamine use was associated with a reduced structural progression in, in NEOA. We're analyzing that data further and trying to add to that, and we'll be hopefully publishing that as a manuscript soon. But I think, you know, so there may be a signal there. Obviously, we do not have enough data at this point, and, and it was beyond the scope of this paper to answer that question, but really to, to definitively know we, we need perspective interventional studies. And, and the question, I think, you know, that we're all wondering, you know, if, if we were to embark on something like that is what's really the right treatment? Is it an antihistamine? Is it something like an anti-IgE treatment? Is it an anti-IL-4 receptor uh, antibody or or even something like chromalin that's more of a mast cell stabilizer? So I think there's a lot to figure out. You, you, you want to Pick the right one if you're going to, you know, go to the the resources of, of an interventional study. But I think there's that's ultimately what we'd like to do. And again, just obviously in terms of, you know, what one size doesn't necessarily fit all. But is is there a population of people here, particularly if you're thinking about designing prospective trials that you might want to stratify out that may have a greater risk and should we be limiting this to those people that may have uh, some de- some degree of atopy? that might put them at greater risk or or is there another biomarker that may be able to differentiate a population that may be more yeah. responsive? Yeah, that's, I mean, I think in a perfect world, you would have synovial biopsies and, and maybe you could uh, stratify on mast cell density or something like that. But I don't think most people are up for that for a study. But I think, you know, we have not been able to identify circulating markers that correlate with synovial tissue findings with regard to mast cells. So that's a challenge, but I, I definitely think you're right that, you know, selecting for atopic disease patients for an initial study is probably the way to go. Wonderful. Fantastic. Now, just in the interest of time, I'm just going to ask a couple of questions, but why do you do what you do? What motivates you? Yeah, I think there's nothing more exciting than scientific discovery and sort of, you know, asking and answering a question that no one's thought of or or asked before and, and designing a study that might actually lead to advances that that help the care of patients is just incredibly motivating. And, you know, I actually, I my alarm is set for 5.45, but I, I literally wake up before that every day, just eager to kind of get into the office and, and get going. Sometimes less so on, you know, depending on what the day has before me, but, you know, if it's a day where I can really dig into to research and analyzing or writing up studies, I'm so excited to get in. Yeah, I agree. We're wonderfully privileged to do the work that we do. And I think there's nothing more exciting than being able to get in and work on a job that is thoroughly enjoyable, but also hopefully makes a big difference to those people that have these diseases. And Matt, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give to people out there who have osteoarthritis? Yeah, I I think many people with osteoarthritis, at least in, in our area, are told there's really nothing that can be done to help them or sort of prevent progression of their disease, which is true to a certain extent. But I would encourage patients not to lose hope and know that you know there's a large group of people working on osteoarthritis to better understand the disease and to develop effective therapies. 
And I think as we've really discussed today, we're hoping that there's actually a medication already on the shelf that that exists now that we could potentially use to really help people. And so I think just, yeah, not, you know, not losing hope because I, I think it can be really discouraging for patients when they've heard that there's no treatment and there's really nothing we can do. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to finish because there is an incredible amount of good research that's going on out there developing new treatments. And, you know, I, I think for everybody who has osteoarthritis, there are some good treatments in existence that hopefully they're, they're taking access of and making themselves better by virtue of doing so. Now, Matt, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us sharing those important insights and, you know, kudos to you for the important work that you're doing and hopefully you continue to make those great strides. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. So as I said in the intro, this is an incredibly exciting area and one with great potential and hopefully one that will accelerate drugs being available for osteoarthritis that are already being used for other diseases. We've highlighted a couple of areas today, specifically the use of metformin, which is commonly used in the management of type 2 diabetes, but also there's a potential for agents that are used in the management of asthma or other atopic disease that might have cross-purpose use in the context of osteoarthritis. For those of you who are out there who have diabetes, who are on metformin and it's helping with your osteoarthritis, fantastic. For those of you who have diabetes and are not on metformin, maybe just discuss that with your treating doctor. But we don't currently have great evidence to suggest that people who are at risk of osteoarthritis or who have osteoarthritis should be taking metformin. We really need to develop that evidence base. But as suggested, that's an incredibly promising and important area, as is the use of antihistamines in asthma and or some other medication that's used for controlling atopic disease. So really hoping you enjoyed the content from today. Thank you so much again for your continued support. And between now and when we next speak, please do take care of yourself. And if you have the chance, someone else as well. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.